0: Hello, I'm Oliver Wong, and you're listening to Heat Rocks. I'm flying solo this week because Morgan Rhodes is away on assignment, but she'll be back soon enough. Every episode, we invite guests to join us to talk about Heat Rock, an album that's burned its way into their soul. And today, we'll be visiting the hit 1974 album, Court and Spark, by Canada's greatest musical export, this side of Justin Bieber, the one and only Joni Mitchell. Take a look at the lists of best albums of 1974, and you'll instantly notice what a crazy sausage fest those are. Male artist after male artist is featured in these retrospectives, but look for any women, and it is slim pickings, besides on a few of those, Linda Ronstadt and LaBelle. There is one exception, though a woman in an album that consistently makes the top tier of all of these lists. Court and Spark by Joni Mitchell. Not only was it one of her most critically lauded LPs, but it was also Joni's best-selling ever, yielding her first and only top 10 U.S. hit, Help Me. Mm. Revisiting the album in 2011, the BBC described Court and Spark as, quote, a sky-high marriage between serenity and yearning. Unquote. I'm not even sure what that means, but it speaks much to how writers have tried to articulate the ineffable qualities of this legendary heat rock. talk about Court and Spark, we invited a singer-songwriter who's been lighting things up herself, C.D. Bay. After moving out to L.A. 10 years ago and getting discovered indirectly through Whole Foods, we will have to revisit this point, mm-hmm. she has been racking up the releases, beginning with her lauded 2014 EPs, Metaphysical and Soul Siren, all the way up to a pair of singles from this year, including Unreachable, which, to me at least, has shades of Heat Rock's Hall of Famers, Anita Baker and Sade. Oh. Welcome to Heat Rocks.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
0: I'm a 70s baby. And so even though I didn't really get anywhere near deep into Joni until years later, I did certainly grow up listening to songs like Help Me, Both Sides Now, and Big Yellow Taxi simply because they were being played on on radio in my youth. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to make an educated guess and assume that you are not a 70s baby. No. So how did you discover Joni Mitchell? I discovered
1: Joni through my mom.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think that when I think of the two artists that were played the most in my household, it was David Bowie and Joni Mitchell. Yeah. So I've been listening to her since I can remember.
0: How old were you when you were first introduced?
1: I mean, honestly, as soon as I can remember hearing music in the house, like like five, she's been playing it forever. Yeah. Yeah. I knew about Joni before... It's funny, people would always say to me later, Joni Mitchell never lies. And I was like, where is that from? (laughs) Like I'm like, yeah, it's true. But it's like I knew about Joni before Janet, even in all
0: of that. Right. Did you ever ask your mom what it was about Joni that she loved so much about her?
1: As an adult, I have. But when I was younger, no, I just knew that I could tell she was honest. And that was something that my mom always liked and appreciated, honest music.
0: So when you first really started listening to Joni, and I don't mean necessarily just in the background in your house growing up, but really sitting with her music, what was it about her, and you've already started talking about this a little bit in terms of her honesty, but what was it about her as an artist that really struck you and, and has stuck with you in the years since?
1: Mm-hmm. I think in middle school, I really started to like understand more emotionally
0: mm-hmm.
1: what that meant to me. Um, Joni's stuff always did have a tinge of sadness. I even felt that when I didn't even fully understand the meaning of her music and just the purity of her voice. Like Mm. I really, that really resonated with me immediately.
0: You both are singer songwriters. And so Mm. I am curious from both roles and not to to divide them here, but what do you hear in Joni's voice as a singer that is striking notable to you?
1: Mm. She has incredible range. I think that because she doesn't belt, maybe some people don't, that doesn't immediately strike them, but she has a dynamic beautiful the clarity in her voice Mm. it's so pure and um she just has like an authentic honest style too
0: i always think about the curl that she introduces in a lot of her songs is that Mm. she takes these notes and just gives it a twist and in the ways that are oftentimes unexpected Mm -hmm. Um, and that to me this has become a signature of at least her better-known songs is that she's always doing those those little note curls that are, she throws in.
1: Yeah, you're talking about like when she goes, chord, inspire. Exactly. Yeah, she does do the little, she bends the notes and puts her own unique inflections into it. Right.
0: I think mm-hmm. whereas other singers might be tempted to do a very intricate run, she just holds the note, right? She's just kind of moving like water through it um, mm-hmm. and, again, creating these unexpected moments, I think, as a listener. yeah. For, as a songwriter, what do you hear in her music that you find so inspiring and, and influential?
1: Ooh, well, it's so inspiring and also kind of intimidating. Like when I listen to Joni, I just have to I have to remember that's Joni's style and not mine. I mean, she's just such an amazing storyteller. Like her intelligence, she's so articulate. And she's so, again, honest. Like it never feels too academic mm-hmm. at the same time.
0: You've described her, I think, as the queen of storytelling.
1: Yes, I would definitely say that she is. I mean, everything just feels so relatable mm. and personal at the same time. I think it's really the it's talent when you can connect um, through a story that feels like it's honest to you and also connect with other people.
2: I've already in the corner thinking nobody and Jack behind is joker and stone cold grace behind her
1: So in this song, I think we can all relate to being at a party, especially in L.A., and you might feel kind of out of place, and you can kind of notice that everybody else feels out of place, too. And I think this song is just about, we feel out of place and we don't feel like we belong or we connect, but really that's what we connect in, Mm. our loneliness and Mm. maybe the feeling that we don't belong.
2: Can you wake me, have a I also
0: am thinking about how, even though, as noted, Joni is from Canada originally, but her initial career was very much developed in the time that she spent out here in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, being part of the Laurel Canyon scene uh, and, and interacting with the music industry in Los Angeles in these aspects of Hollywood and fame that I think work their way into her songs, especially in the early 70s, such as on this album. And as someone who mm-hmm. yourself is a transplant to L.A., are there dynamics of that that you identify with in terms of that outsider uncomfortability that can sometimes come when you are trying to absorb what it is to be in Los Angeles.
1: Yes, I really relate to Joni's feelings about LA. And this song is definitely like the quintessential LA in the 70s album. And she talks about how she can't escape from LA. Mm. So it's like the conflict of loving LA, the madness and the craziness, but also being pretty like, Intimidated and overwhelmed by it as well. Yeah. So I mean there were a lot of clearly drugs and crazy things going on at the time. Has, just a little bit, yeah. Probably changed, but <laughs> um
0: maybe the drugs of nice. choice, but yeah, there's still a lot of substances rolling through.
1: Yeah, it's just it's about that landscape at that time, and I think it's similar now. It's pretty brutal. And how you're just not quite prepared to let go of it. Mm. And all the things you learn about relationship and me too. Like I've learned so much about myself and relationship while living in here Yeah. and just the con- inner conflicts that you experience.
0: The thing about Joni's work, especially as a songwriter and I think for many, and this goes back to the, the point that she was one of the few women artists that was accepted within this very male raucous environment in the seventies mm-hmm. is one of her strengths I think is that she's both, Deeply romantic and yet at the same time deeply realist in how she talks about love and romance and the yearnings that she has for it. But at the same time, she never gives herself into these flights of fancy without grounding it in some cold, sometimes maybe cynical truths, Mm -hmm. which also I think end up being really funny. So that line, send me someone who is strong and somewhat sincere, and it's the somewhat that I just am completely delighted by because it's something—it's very wry. It's very funny in a subtle way,
1: right? Yeah, it's kind of like a compromise. I mean, I kind of think, where, she, where was she if she would just accept even somewhat sincere? And I really think that song in particular and this album is just about the desire for love, mm-hmm. but the desire to be free at the same time. And she talks a lot about freedom and also about her willingness to not go into it blindly and naively anymore. So like what you said, it's like a realist, like she's still, you know, she's still a romantic, but she's woken up to the reality that love is not perfect. And that it can be really difficult and painful.
0: I certainly suspect we'll come back to, to help me uh, later, but Mm -hmm. that is so much at the center of that song, which is that you love your loving, like you love your freedom. And she, poses these things, maybe not that they're diametrically opposed, but the idea that they're separate. And I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting because in a lot of ways we hear through other kinds of love songs, the idea that love liberates us. And she's saying, yeah, kind of, but maybe not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That song really isn't really truly romantic when you really listen to the lyrics. <laughs> right. It's almost like, oh my gosh, help me. Cause I know I'm about to go into a disastrous <laughs> situation again. Even though it feels so, like, that's the thing, like, this album, it can, the, the topics, it's very ironic and be kind of sad when you think about it. But the instrumentation and the feeling of it is still so light because right. there's still
0: hope. Let's dig into the album aspect of it because Joni's output in this era, so beginning in the late 60s when she first debuts, all the way up through the end of the 70s, she's putting out practically an album a year. And this is just a murderer's row of some of the best work that we know from her. So Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned, uh, or I think I mentioned Blue earlier, if not Blue, obviously, uh, The Hissing of Summer Lawns, which is just a great album title. Like, Shout out to good album titles. Mm -hmm. Why did you want to talk about Court and Spark in particular? What is it about this album that makes it a heat rock for you?
1: Well, I think it is important to note, like you said, that it is her most popular album. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to that. Clearly, it resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, Um, I mean... I just feel like I really love her later stuff, which I know a lot of people couldn't handle because it got a little too jazzy and abstract for them. But I just, I love the universal um, appeal of this album. And I think it's also inspiring as an artist myself to know that this was her attempt of climbing out of the place of just being a credible cult artist into like a pop star. Because this was her attempt, like admittedly to write a commercial album. And I think she really did that in a way that she was able to reach as many people as possible without pandering to them.
0: It makes me think of, to use a much more contemporary example, when Taylor Swift decided to go from being this crossover country artist and just fully embracing a pop personality. Mm -hmm. I think Joni in a lot of ways set the standard for this or the template for this, you know, 20, 40 years ago Mm -hmm. in making this move from, as you're suggesting, this cult figure huge in the folk rock world. And she's like, I'm going to I'm gonna go get a bunch of jazz musicians, Tom Scott's, AliExpress, and I'm gonna make a pop album, mm-hmm. and y'all gonna love it.
1: Yeah, it took a lot of courage. I think she really, she kind of broke out of the the place. And I think a lot. This still is a perception that you're if you're too real, if you're you know too cool, you're too credible, you can't be accepted by the masses. And she really defied that
0: belief. Mm. Without taking away anything from her songwriting on here, I think it's worth noting that she was collaborating with a lot of different folks on this album to help it achieve the particular sound it had. So that mm-hmm. include, included older friends like Graham Nash and David Crosby, who she'd worked with in the past, but also, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, members of her new backing band, the LA Express, which included Tom Scott, uh, jazz artist Joe Sample. Mm-hmm. And that interplay on this album between these different communities of musicians, I think, goes a long way in creating this very striking sound on the album, which does, as we've been talking, pivot from the folk rock of her earlier releases. And I'm wondering, what do you hear in the music of it that that stays with you and, and you, you find notable?
1: Oh, I do love just the subtle elements of jazz. Um, she, I think it's really impressive that she executive, you know, produces. She knew who to pull in and That I really respect, too. Um, Oh, God, I love so much of the music. I love that it's not repetitive and Mm -hmm. that everything flows with the story, like the story she's telling. I love her background vocals. Um, I love how she just constantly, of course, includes her acoustic guitar, which is such a staple of hers. And she doesn't lose that folk rock element, Mm -hmm. but she brings some soulfulness to it. I read one of her books. What is it called? It's Joni Mitchell in her own words. But she was discussing how she was inspired by Stevie's inner vision mm. and that she felt like inner visions was, and Stevie was her. In a, in a flattering way, her equal, like she felt like Joni's pretty confident. She talked about them <laughs> both being like the great poets of that time, and yeah. honestly, I kind of would have to agree when I think about pop stars like right. Stevie and Joni, and even musically, like the fact that they write everything. Right. But um, she was inspired by that sound sonically, and I can definitely pick up on on that, like the warmth of it. And the subtleness of the funkiness in there.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's dead on in terms of when you're listening to, and I don't mean to keep bringing things always back to Help Me, but I always pay attention to this, the work of the drumming there. Mm-hmm. its It has a funky backbeat to mm-hmm. it, and it's not the most obvious thing. You're not going to confuse it with the James Brown or Parliament song, but it's there nonetheless, and I think it gives Help Me a particular tempo and feel that stands out and it has made it memorable. Um, Mm -hmm. Along those lines, though, I think Joni has said on record that it was really a song that the label wanted her to do, or at least in terms of why they picked it out as a single. That was them saying, oh, this is going to be the radio track. And it sounds like for her, it didn't really matter one way or another. It wouldn't necessarily have been her personal choice, but Mm -hmm. at least someone at the the record label recognized what the commercial potential was. And and it seems like they were right because it became this top ten hit for her.
1: Yeah, I think they made a good choice. Another thing musically that I... uh, I was talking to a friend and Laura Nero was obviously like a similar yes. artist at that time that yeah. a lot of people don't even know of.
0: Right. But she, she definitely, died early. I think partly was a big part. Of
1: yeah, it, yeah. And I think I think Joni had the pop appeal that she and I know Joni was fierce, too. I think of her, <laughs> you hear things about Joni. Um, I don't know if Laura was necessarily into the hustle as much, of, as, much as Joni was, but mm. um, you can definitely hear Laura's influence in there, especially with the piano. Like mm. Joni started incorporating more of the piano probably in blue even the more she was inspired by laura
0: i think of the two as being very similar vocally because they have these light bright voices that do a lot more work than you might initially assume Mm -hmm. Um, and with someone not to veer too far off but you know one of the best albums that laura recorded was with labelle as her backup singers. I mean, that's what kind of clout do you have to have for LaBelle to be your backup singers? Of course, this is before LaBelle became LaBelle. But nonetheless, that interplay, them singing a lot of 60s standards, Motown and and 60s R&B songs, you can, I think, to to your point, you can really trace a lot of that influence that um, Joni would embrace in the work that that Laura Nero was doing just a couple years before then. The Stevie Wonder anecdote that you mentioned I think is also interesting insofar as, yes... It is a lot to try to compare yourself to Stevie, but to the extent that both of them were very much artists who wanted to see through their own vision, regardless of what others or the market wanted willing to dictate, and they were willing to take it there. Mm-hmm. This is something that a quality that I think both artists display all throughout the 70s, which is about establishing an independent entity, not necessarily from a industry or commercial point of view, but from a creative one and mm-hmm. the kind of chances that, that you would have to take in order to make that happen.
1: Yeah, they were both leaders. They were both leaders at that time. And as you said, just the constant output, they were both putting out so much so much material at that time.
0: So yeah. besides Court and Spark, what are the other Joni albums that you have gravitated towards?
1: I love Don Juan and his Reckless Daughter. Mm. I love Hijira. I love Mingus. And I do love The Hissing of Summer Lawns. I do really love all of them. But um, out of all those, I really like Kajira right now Mm. as well. Um, I love all of them. But I definitely prefer the later albums as she got more jazzy. She definitely becomes more blunt and brutal, as you kind of said. Some of it can be pretty scathing, actually. I was reading something about Court and Spark and compared to her later works and just how she was always so good at telling stories to where it didn't feel condescending. But as she went on later, it did seem to become a little bit more brutal, like a little less um, empathetic. But I do, just, I do admire her poetry. It becomes a bit more abstract later as well.
0: I was also going to say maybe it just has to do with as you age, you become a little bit less patient and perhaps a little bit less generous towards the fictional or realistic real objects of your songwriting, whether or not they're put out on front street in an explicit way or not. So that could certainly be part of it.
1: Yeah. And I think Joni, like admittedly, just not got she didn't get bitter, but she was definitely frustrated about the industry and the way that it worked and definitely working with men. She said she always felt like she was fighting to be a part of the boys' club. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that would be frustrating when you're such an accomplished musician like Joni and still kind of like it's the boys' club.
0: You see it a lot, too, in the reviews of this album and a lot of her albums from this early 70s era where, on the one hand, the reviewers, who are almost overwhelmingly all men, they're commending and they're heaping praise on her in some areas, but the way in which they talk about her song material thematically, which a lot of it does revolve around relationships, Um, some of them very thinly cloaked allegories about her own real-life relationships with different people within the music industry. Mm -hmm. There's always this air of condescension that accompanies this, where I just don't feel like if they were writing about male songwriters who themselves are writing about their relationships, it would factor in. There's always, I think, a very almost subtle And this is before the term ever came to use, but kind of a slut-shamey quality to the ways in which they write about Joni writing about her own relationships.
1: Totally. I mean, I think she was called the Queen of L.A. I think that
0: was
1: (laughs) the title they gave her. And you know what? Maybe Joni did sleep with a lot of people that she worked with, but I'm sure a lot of the men did the same. Right. And it was definitely a bit of a double standard. And even if she did, there's no – like I can't – feel anything against her because she's so talented like and I think she was romantic like yes. I think it was all just real and that was just part of who she was
0: on court and spark do you find her to be more on the naive end of things or more on the leaning towards getting older slightly more bitter end
1: more more bitter this is actually maybe why I like it. it's in the middle mm. it really is of like her just really coming to that place of accepting that love isn't perfect yeah. but it, Still being honest about wanting it, yeah. and so she still craves relationship, and she's still a romantic. But I think she's just at that point where she's not willing to be um, subdued by it. Right. And so, yeah, she's kind of right in the middle.
0: It's that yearning for freedom.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The conflict.
0: We will be back with more of our conversation with C. D. Bay about Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark after a brief word from a couple of our sibling Max Fun podcasts. Keep it locked.
3: (laughs) Listen, we already know that you love genre movies, film craft, and female filmmakers. So, if you love all those things, then by transitive property, you love my podcast, Switchblade Sisters. Hi, I'm film critic April Wolfe. Every week, I have a conversation with a different female filmmaker about their favorite genre film. Each episode covers the filmmaking process, working in the film industry, and just like general geeking out about
4: awesome movies. I've had such great guests like the big sick writer Emily Gordon. To me, indie movies as of late have come to be a catch-all term for a movie that kind of Defy genre? Billy
3: Madison and half-baked director Tamara Davis. When a comedian comes and enters onto my set, they're th- they're just there to be funny. And we're all ready and waiting for them to be funny. Horror industry veteran and actor Barbara Crampton. That's where real drama lies for me. What's, what's between you and I speaking right now? Where, where are we meeting? And what's the energy that we create between us? And so many others. So check out Switchblade Sisters every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Judge John Hodgman
3: ruled in my favor.
4: Judge John Hodgman ruled in my friend's favor. Judge John Hodgman ruled in my
0: favor. I'm Judge John Hodgman. You're hearing the voices of real litigants, real people who have submitted disputes to my internet court at the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I hear their cases, I ask them questions, they're good ones, and then I tell them who's right and who's wrong.
4: Thanks to Judge John Hodgman's ruling, My dad has been forced to retire, one of the worst dad jokes of all time. Instead of cutting his own hair with a flobe, my husband has his hair cut professionally. I have to join a community theater group.
0: And my wife has stopped bringing home wild animals. It's the Judge John
4: Hodgman Podcast. Find it every Wednesday at MaximumFun.org or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks, Judge John Hodgman.
0: We are back here on Heat Rocks talking about Joni Mitchell's hit 1974 album Court and Spark with L.A.'s own CD Bay. If we can take a a brief detour to talk about your own background here. Mm -hmm. I read that you so you were discovered indirectly through Whole Foods and you're going to have to explain that one Mm -hmm. to us.
1: I was in high school and I had a job at Whole Foods. So around that time, I decided that I needed to be in homeschool so I could really pursue music. And so I told my mom like, Hey, I need to like, I need to be serious about this. I need to dedicate all my time to it. And so I got into homeschool and I stopped working at Whole Foods. Um, Shopping later on, I was shopping, which I always tell people really comes in handy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that shopping is a waste of time. I was at the mall, and I ran into this couple that I had seen at Whole Foods all the time when I was bagging groceries. Yeah. and they said, "Oh, why aren't you at Whole Foods anymore?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm trying to—I sing, and I'm trying to pursue a career in music." And the guy was like, "Sing for me!" And so I sang for him on the spot. In the in the mall. Yep, in the Topanga Mall. In the
0: Topanga Mall.
1: Yes, and he was like, "Oh my gosh, this is amazing!" And. Luckily, I had songs that I had written and recorded, and I was prepared. He sent them to Universal, and they flew me over there, and I did a showcase and got my first record deal.
0: That is extraordinary.
1: It was pretty awesome, yeah.
0: I mean, I like my local Trader Joe's quite a bit. I don't know if I would remember a bagger from there if I were to just literally smack and run into them on the street. So the fact that they have remembered you, you must have made quite the impression as a bagger.
1: I guess. Maybe I just really packed their vegetables and fruits like perfectly. It's very important I, to do that. It is. I'm glad I didn't just stuff everything in there.
0: It's no surprise, I think, for a lot of people who listen to your work, let alone read some of your interviews, that besides Joni, one of your other big influences is Sade. Hmm. And To me, the two of them have – and we were talking earlier about the similarities between, let's say, her and someone like Stevie. But I also think of a lot of similarities between Sade and Joni, especially with, at the very least, right, their kind of – the creative approach they take to their careers and also just their vocal instruments. They don't sound alike, but what they use it with and what makes them memorable and unique, I think there's something that they share in common there. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering for someone like yourself who draws so much information from both – what is it that you get from each of them in ways that are similar and different
1: mm-hmm. hmm well, I think Shade still has they both deal a lot with romantic relationship, clearly, yeah. and that's something that I can relate to It's good inspiration um Sade definitely still has more of the optimist point of view. I think joni mm. S- Joni definitely got a little bit more bitter as you yeah. said, yeah. They're both very just very honest and very feminine. Mm. Like, I think that they both have a feminine quality that I really am drawn to. They're both, like, circled in a circle with men mm. as well. Like, right. you know, Shadi with Sweet Back and Joni with all of the men she worked with. Yeah. Um, I guess, again, just the honesty. It feels like even though their songwriting is very different, Joni's is much more complex. And I think is what I love about it is it's so simple. Yes it just feels so honest again. Like it feels like it's really coming from their heart. Mm.
0: To come to bring this back to Court and Spark, what is, what is the fire track on this album for you? What is the one track you hear it every time it just gets you?
1: Well, you played it actually, Same Situation. I mean, that one is the one where, I, maybe it's just where it is in the album. I just do, I break down in tears because she's just so honest. Like it really just sounds like a a flow of thoughts, like a steady stream. Um, Just God send me someone somewhat sincere and putting up a prayer out there and just, just a visual. I can see her in that bathroom, like, Mm. you know, beautiful. She was 30 when she put this album out, which is really impressive too. And interesting. It's inspiring to know that she had so much work up to this point and still like she had her, like her best work, if you want to say it was at this time.
0: We didn't talk about this earlier, but this was her sixth album. Yeah. It's not. It wasn't her debut. wasn't the, the long-awaited sophomore follow-up. This was six albums deep in her career. Yeah. And then and – I was going to say she blew up off of it even though she obviously had clearly established herself prior to that with the Ladies of the Canyon and, of course, Blue. But, yeah, to, to have your biggest hit album be half a dozen LPs in, yeah, it does give one hope that you don't have to come out the gate – yeah. And and blow up right there. You you can you can be a little bit older and still have that success.
1: Yeah, and I think that it shows a lot about the difference in like patience level, yeah. like the way that the music industry was. Like people gave artists time to develop. Like even Stevie, like his stuff in the seventies. Stevie had been doing it since Little Stevie, right. um, and so it is. It's it's nice that they gave artists a chance to just develop mm. and and grow.
0: What is the sleeper song off of this LP? Maybe one that you either think that people don't give enough credit to, or perhaps one that you rediscovered later that you maybe skipped over when you initially started sitting with this album that has now become one of your your favorites after
2: Mm. the
1: fact. Well, one that I like now, because I know what my least favorite is, but...
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's not the sleeper. That's just the one you want to keep sleep, right? Okay,
1: yes. Um... Maybe Twisted, which is actually the only song on the album that's not an original.
0: Mm.
1: I always kind of was like, what? It always felt weird going into that. But now that I have more perspective on her and like listening, really listening to the lyrics of that song, they they sound like she could have written them because they're so witty and sarcastic. And I just think it's a brilliant way to close the album because it's such a heavy album to end on a note that's so light. And it's basically talking about like... She's kind of ambivalent at the end too and she's like, "You may or may not like this, but you know I'm here being a genius, or am I like it's just very it's very smart and self deprecating and also very confident
2: you know what was happening I-
0: It's also, I think, by far the jazziest cut. You know, you got the walking bass line. You can kind of just imagine her almost with a top hat and a cane doing a routine to it. Yeah, it is. And I think you're, you're, you're spot on in noting it is an interesting way to end the album because, especially if you compare it with the very first song, which is the title track, they don't sound anything alike. Yeah. And by the time you get there, she just pops up with this sonic surprise that I think probably took a, at least a few people aback in terms of wait what what is what is this
1: yeah no i think it's cool too cuz it kind of is like a transition into the rest of her material that really went like super jazz
0: i would normally ask this except you brought it up you so you do have a least favorite song off of here yeah. you care to share it and why
1: raised on robbery <laughs> just never really been a fan of it i don't really like that type of rock and roll anyways and i know that's like super authentic and like the roots of rock but it's just too rockabilly for me and it doesn't feel again like it's super personal like it just feels like okay here let me execute this really cool rock and roll track but i don't relate to her in that song and i don't feel that light feminine essence that i i like Hmm. feeling from her
0: I know if Morgan was here, a question that she would have liked to ask is, for someone who is not familiar with Joni, let alone with this album, if you had to pick a track off of here to serve as an introduction, doesn't have to encompass all that there is to the magnitudes that is Joni Mitchell, but just an introduction to her, what song off of here do you think you would suggest as someone to to sample?
1: Well, I guess I'd have to go with the obvious choice, Help Me, just because I think it does have the most appeal. I think people who might in their minds see Joni as just the folk Canadian uh, goddess. They'll be like, oh, okay, wow, like these horns at the end, and like you said, the swing, and like it's sexy and it's groovy. Um, And it's light. It's something I think people like superficially can relate to. So I guess I would say help me.
0: It has one of the best first, what, four, eight bars of any Joni Mitchell song I can think of. Mm-hmm. The vocal acrobatics that she was doing, I was saying earlier at the beginning, just about the kind of curls that she puts in. And it's so unexpected, this, the, the the vocal melody that she decides to go with on this is, is just out of nowhere. And I, I never get tired of just listening to the beginning of the song for that reason.
1: Yeah, she's so dynamic. Yeah, it is totally unexpected. and. I mean, that's how you know she writes her own songs. It just feels like it's coming out of one brain, which it is.
0: You have covered other artists. Uh, You have a fantastic version of Sade's uh, Love is Stronger Than Pride. Uh. I was looking specifically to see if you've ever covered a Joni Mitchell song. And maybe my Google skills are just flawed, but I didn't find one. So I'm wondering, is it something that you would ever think about doing? And if so, which Joni song off of this album would you want to try to tackle if you ever decided to take it there?
1: Oh, that's a good question because I actually have one that I'm preparing to release. Um, It's actually a cover of her song. So Prince covered um, her song "A Case of You," yeah. or I think it's "Case of You." Yeah. and so I covered his cover of it. <laughs> <laughs> I covered. I love both of them. So
0: I love the meta ness of that. And all with, yeah. all it takes now mm-hmm. is for your cover to blow up, and then there's going to be someone on YouTube who's going to cover your cover of the cover of the cover.
1: That'd be perfect. There you go. People are like what song is this?
0: How did you end up choosing that one in particular?
1: Um, I mean, I do love that song. It's beautiful. Um, it's off of Blue, I think. Yeah. But I just loved Prince's interpretation of that, and I'm a huge Prince fan. And he was a huge fan of Joni's. He'd been covering that song actually back for a while before he even like recorded it on that on her covers album. Right. But he, uh, yeah, he just made me see it in a whole different way.
0: When you sit down and you plan on covering a song like this, which you know has a life of its own, a familiarity that people have with it, how do you make creative decisions around what you want to do with it to, as they say, make it your own?
1: I think that naturally comes through either playing it and it just comes through practice. Like, you know, if sometimes if I'm covering it and I'm playing on the guitar or somebody else is playing it, just the more I get to know the song, the more comfortable I get with it, it just naturally happens, the inflections. And I think you'll hear like in the the cover, I think I do a good job of making it my own mm-hmm. and definitely being inspired by Prince made it even more dynamic than Joni mm-hmm. and that's like hard to do because yeah. Joni's already dynamic but I think I I maybe even went a little bit above like I definitely went into more of a classical kind of interpretation of it where it got a little bit more Saravon classical jazz okay. elements to it and that just naturally came out.
0: Yeah. Well, looking forward to that. Court and Spark. Was this an album that was right on time ahead of its time or timeless?
1: Timeless but definitely right on time when it came out because I think that when an album just becomes like such an explosive hit like that, it really clearly is resonating with people at the time. And it definitely wouldn't have made sense earlier because like the sixties revolution happened and people were in a different place in the seventies. But I think, I mean, like we said in the beginning, I can definitely relate to it. I think it definitely appeals to clearly a woman's perspective, even Mm. though everybody can relate to it. Um, Just a woman in L.A., like even on Same Situations, the way she talks about, I'm just like another one of your pretty girls. Right. Um, Yeah. I think it's pretty relatable right now too.
0: Right. Timeless. Right, right. And she's definitely firing shots at someone on that one. I don't think that was a – that was not a pretend subject of her, of that particular song. She clearly had someone in mind, I'm sure, when she wrote
1: that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he knew. He's like (laughs) – I'm sure dating her was like, oh, crap.
0: What song am I going
1: to inspire –
0: well, on the plus side, maybe it'd be a really great song. then you could say, hey, that was about me, even though she's making me sound like a, you know, like a voice or something like that. You True.
1: Know? I guess you should just be flattered that Joni, like, thought enough to write a song about you.
0: I certainly would be. hmm If you had to describe Court and Spark in three words, in only three words, what would you choose?
1: Disillusionment. Mm. Optimism. And honest.
0: Mm. Right on. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Heat Rocks today. What are you working on?
1: I'm working on getting my next few singles out, which will... All, I'll have one coming out at the end of this month, okay. followed by another one about a month later, and also releasing my first videos. So that will be happening in the next couple of weeks. All right,
0: you have a very busy fall. like right Yeah, I'm excited for yeah. these new things. And where can people find you, find out more about you online?
1: Um, You can find me on all social media platforms, CD Bay on Instagram, CD Bay on Twitter, official CD Bay on Facebook.
0: You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong, and Morgan Rhodes. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One, and people under the stairs, shout out to Thess for that. Heat Rocks is produced by myself and Morgan. Our booking producer is Shana DeLoria, and our engineering and editing producer is Christian Duenas. Laura Swisher is our senior producer, and exec producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the West Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where you might be able to find someone who is strong and a little sincere.
3: (laughs) Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HeatRocksPod. You can find a link to our Facebook group page on our webpage, HeatRocksPod.com. That's where we'll post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything you've heard today and many more goodies. Again, that's at HeatRocksPod.com. Com.
0: We want to thank our most recent five-star iTunes reviewers, including IMJM68 and Milo. I hope I get this right. Strophilus. if you haven't had a chance yet, please consider leaving us a review since it is a key way in which wonderful new listeners can find their way to us.
3: We also wanted to thank all of our social media fans out there, including noble vessel thank you so much for shouting out the intro episode with fonte we also want to thank zora future emerson zora hamsa that's cool also want to thank kevin Smokler. oh man nick Liao gave us a shout out and oh nick yep shout out to nick and he's he he has a picture of himself rocking the heat rocks pin Mm. also jesse we need those pins brethren we also want to shout out Blean-tastic, the pastor's husband. Okay. All right, Liam. We also want to shout out Jay Boogie, uh, Jesse Thorne, indeed, that gave us some love. Brendan M., Kevin Z. Cap, Diana Depp, and Bomar Blog, who is the first person to reinterpret our artwork, which I love that. We also want to thank out Chef Mlu and others. Thank you so much for the Tweezies and The retweezies. Good to see you, Oliver.
0: Good to see you too, Morgan. And before we get up out of here, here is a teaser for next week's episode, which features Afro-punk director James Spooner talking about Minor Threat's self-titled compilation
4: LP. I was hanging out with this kid who, he was my, my best friend at the time, and he uh, he had went to L.A. for the weekend or something, and he was complaining about like how he was hanging out with these lame straight edge kids. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what's straight edge, you know? And he was like, oh, there's these like loser punks that don't do drugs or drink. And I was 13 and I was like being peer pressured into drinking and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it Mm -hmm. to a degree, but my heart wasn't really about that. But I I really wanted to be punk. You know, I really wanted people to look at me and be like, that is a punk rocker, you know? (laughs) So it just the... Just the him saying that there are punks that don't drink or do drugs, like categorically. I was like, Mm. "Oh, you can? That's a thing." Yeah, you know. MaximumFun.org.
2: Comedy and culture. Artist-owned.
4: Listener-supported.